Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 98, Margaret Sanger Uncensored. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss Margaret Sanger's thwarted attempt to present a lecture on birth control to the good citizens of Boston in April of 1929. The 1920s were a fairly liberating time for women. They were voting, drinking alcohol socially, cutting their hair short, and dancing the Charleston in short dresses. However, Boston was slow to let its hair down under the stern gaze of the Watch and Ward Society, and birth control remained one of the ultimate taboos. But before we talk about Margaret Sanger's attempt to educate, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. For this week's historic site, we're featuring Old South Meeting House. The building was completed in 1729 as the home for the congregation that famously split from First Church of Boston in 1669, the Congregational Church founded by John Winthrop. After the Boston Massacre in 1770, Yearly anniversary meetings were held at the church until 1775, featuring speakers such as John Hancock and Dr. Joseph Warren. However, the meeting house's great claim to fame was a pivotal meeting on December 16, 1775, that culminated in a mob crawl to the waterfront and the Boston Tea Party. In 1775, British troops occupied the meeting house as punishment for its role in and symbolism of the revolutionary cause. They gutted the building, filled it with dirt, and then used the interior to practice horse riding. They destroyed much of the building and stole various items, including William Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation, a unique pilgrim manuscript hidden in Old South's Tower. After the troops evacuated Boston, the plan for rebuilding the interior of the church was drawn up by Thomas Dawes. Fast forward a hundred years, and Old South Meeting House was almost destroyed in the Great Boston Fire of 1872. However, the mass destruction of 40 acres of the downtown area by fire caused the city's residential districts to shift toward the Back Bay, away from the church. The congregation then built a new church building, the new Old South Church in Copley Square, which remains its home to this day. After the move, the church put the building up for sale. The building was advertised as thus. All the materials above the level of the sidewalks, except the cornerstone and the clock in the tower, of this ancient and historical landmark building, which has now come under the auctioneer's hammer, and will be disposed of on Thursday, June 8, 1876, at 12 o'clock noon, on the premises on the corner of Washington and Milk Streets. The spire is covered with copper, and there's a lot of lead on roof and belfry, and the roof is covered with imported Welsh slate. Sixty days will be allowed for the removal. Terms cash. Old South Meeting House's website describes the rescue effort. The proud Old South Meeting House was auctioned off for the paltry sum of $1,350 for the value of its materials the valuable downtown lot would then be freed for sale or lease. Copper was being removed from the building when a determined group of 20 women of Boston organized to stop the demolition and raise funds to save the building from the Wreckers' Ball. They enlisted famous Bostonians, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, Julia Ward Howe, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and Louisa May Alcott to rally people to help. 
rousing speeches by abolitionist Wendell Phillips and others moved audiences to pledge funds needed to save this historic landmark. Their combined efforts raised over $400,000, an enormous sum in the 1870s, to purchase the building and its land. It was the first time that a public building in the United States was saved because of its association with nationally important historical events. The Old South Meeting House was saved and opened to the public as a museum and meeting place in 1877 by the Old South Association. It was one of the nation's earliest museums of American history. True to its roots, the organization has long championed free speech. In 1916, Old South Meeting House launched a popular forum featuring diverse speakers and public discussions of contemporary issues. Today, guests can visit Old South Meeting House daily for the bargain price of $6 for adults. The museum includes a permanent exhibit on dissent and free speech in Boston, including a statue of Margaret Sanger. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a lecture presented by the Ford Hall Forum, the oldest free public lecture series in the United States. The Ford Hall Forum's mission is to promote freedom of speech and foster an informed and engaged citizenry through the free public presentation of lectures, debates, and discussions. The forum was founded in February 1908 by George W. Coleman, a Boston businessman and then leader of the Boston Baptist Social Union. The first public lectures were held in the union's meeting place, the Ford Building on Beacon Hill, from which the forum's name originates. As a free speech institution that does not endorse the view of any of its speakers, the forum has occasionally given a stage to speakers who other institutions would or could not. As you soon learn, Margaret Sanger appeared at the forum in 1929. Around the same time, the forum withstood criticism for hosting meetings with civil rights activist W.E.B. Dubois. Malcolm X was invited to speak in the 1960s, at a time when he was widely considered too dangerous to be given a public podium in the heart of Boston. In the early 1990s, when former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke was nearly elected to a seat in the U.S. Senate, the forum brought him to Boston to answer questions about his views and his past. Ousted by the Boston Baptist Social Union for fear of being associated with radicalism, the Ford Hall Forum became independent in 1929. The stated purpose of the new corporation was to provide education such as will develop intelligent, capable, and responsible citizens, minister to the welfare of all, and promote understanding of civic, moral, religious, and spiritual responsibilities. This can be done in part by maintaining a common meeting ground for all the people where there will be a full, free, and open public discussion of all vital questions affecting human welfare. For many years, the Ford Hall Forum was based at Northeastern University, but today the Forum is presenting its lecture series in cooperation with Suffolk University. On Thursday, October 25th, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Modern Theater, the Forum is hosting a lecture titled Puritans, Native Americans, and Historians, a conversation about New England's conflicted past. The description reads, Public commemorations have become a difficult business in recent years, often provoking sharp conflict about the meaning and implications of the past. With the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims' arrival in Plymouth fast approaching, 
The Congregational Library and Archives joins Ford Hall Forum at Suffolk University in sponsoring an important conversation about remembering and memorializing that event, bringing together leading scholars of Puritanism and Native American history. We'll include a link to reserve tickets, which are required, in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Boston has the reputation of being perhaps the most liberal city in America. But there's a surprising twist in that we're also regarded as being one of the most racist cities in America, with the Boston Globe recently highlighting the stark inequities that exist for people of color in our city. We're the city that birthed the Watch and Ward Society, moral policing to the highest degree, yet we're also the city that launched the American Civil Liberties Union. It is in this context that we look at Margaret Sanger's historic appearance in Boston, recognizing that she too held some unsavory beliefs. Sanger was born in 1879 in Corning, New York, to Michael Hennessy Higgins, an Irish-born stonemason and freethinker, and Anne Purcell Higgins, a Catholic-Irish-American. Her eventual trajectory is less surprising when one considers the experiences of her parents. Michael Hennessy Higgins had immigrated to the U.S. at age 14 and joined the Army as a drummer at age 15 during the Civil War. After leaving the Army, Michael studied medicine and phrenology but ultimately became a stonecutter, making stone angels, saints, and tombstones. Michael H. Higgins was a Catholic who became an atheist and an activist for women's suffrage and free public education. He was not one to be limited by convention. Anne was born in Ireland, immigrating to Canada as a child during the potato famine. She married Michael in 1869 and went on to endure 18 pregnancies with 11 live births, in 22 years, before dying at the age of 49. Margaret was the sixth of 11 surviving children and spent much of her youth filling the roles of housekeeper and nanny. Supported by her two older sisters, Margaret attended Claverick College and Hudson River Institute before enrolling in 1900 at White Plains Hospital as a nurse probationer. In 1902, she married the architect William Sanger and gave up her education. The couple had three children together during their tumultuous marriage. In 1911, after a fire destroyed their home in Hastings-on-Hudson, the Sangers abandoned the suburbs for an urban life in New York City. Margaret worked as a visiting nurse in the slums of the East Side, while her husband worked as an architect and a house painter. Already entrenched in progressive politics, Margaret dove into the radical politics and modernist views of pre-World War I Greenwich Village. She joined the Women's Committee of the New York Socialist Party, took part in the labor actions of the industrial workers of the world, and became involved with local intellectuals, artists, socialists, and social activists, including Upton Sinclair and Emma Goldman. Sanger's political interests, emerging feminism, and nursing experience led her to write two series of columns on sex education entitled What Every Mother Should Know and What Every Girl Should Know for the socialist magazine New York Call. By the standards of the day, Sanger's articles were extremely frank in their discussion of sexuality, and many readers were outraged by them. Others, however, praised the series for its candor. Both were published in book form in 1916. By working among working-class immigrant women, Sanger met women who underwent frequent childbirth, miscarriages, 
and self-induced abortions for lack of information on how to avoid unwanted pregnancy. Access to contraceptive information was prohibited on grounds of obscenity by the 1873 federal Comstock Law and a host of state laws. Seeking to help these women, Sanger visited public libraries but was unable to find information on contraception. These problems were epitomized in a story that Sanger would later recount in her speeches. While Sanger was working as a nurse, she was called to the apartment of a woman named Sadie Sachs, who had become extremely ill due to a self-induced abortion. Afterward, Sadie begged the attending doctor to tell her how she could prevent this from happening again, to which the doctor simply advised her to remain abstinent. A few months later, Sanger was called back to Sadie's apartment, only this time, Sadie died shortly after Sanger arrived. She had attempted yet another self-induced abortion. Sanger would sometimes end the story by saying, I threw my nursing bag in the corner and announced that I would never take another case until I had made it possible for working women in America to have the knowledge to control birth. Biographer Ellen Chesler attempted unsuccessfully to find corroboration of this story. One can imagine, however, that Sanger encountered a countless number of Sadie Sachs. Given the connection between contraception and working-class empowerment, Sanger came to believe that only by liberating women from the risk of unwanted pregnancy would fundamental social change take place. Sanger opposed abortion, but primarily as a societal ill and public health danger, which would disappear if women were able to prevent unwanted pregnancy. She launched a campaign to challenge government censorship of contraceptive information through confrontational actions. In 1914, Sanger launched The Woman Rebel, an eight-page monthly newsletter which promoted contraception using the slogan, No Gods, No Masters. Sanger, collaborating with anarchist friends, popularized the term birth control as a more candid alternative to euphemisms such as family limitation. Sanger proclaimed that each woman should be the absolute mistress of her own body. In these early years of Sanger's activism, she viewed birth control as a free speech issue. And when she started publishing The Woman Rebel, one of her goals was to provoke a legal challenge to the federal anti-obscenity laws which banned dissemination of information about contraception. Though postal authorities suppressed five of its seven issues, Sanger continued publication, all the while preparing a pamphlet entitled Family Limitation, another challenge to anti-birth control laws. This 16-page pamphlet contained detailed and precise information and graphic descriptions of various contraceptive methods. In August 1914, Margaret Sanger was indicted for violating postal obscenity laws by sending the woman rebel through the postal system. Rather than stand trial, she fled to England. During her exile, Margaret refined her socioeconomic justifications for birth control. She asserted that overpopulation led to poverty, famine, and war. When Sanger visited a Dutch birth control clinic in 1915, she learned about diaphragms and became convinced that they were a more effective means of contraception than the suppositories and douches that she'd been distributing back in the U.S. Diaphragms were generally unavailable in the United States, so Sanger and others began importing them from Europe in defiance of United States law. On October 16, 1916, Sanger opened a family planning and birth control clinic at 46 Amboy Street in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. 
the first of its kind in the United States. Nine days after the clinic opened, Sanger was arrested. Bail was set at $500, and she went home. Sanger continued seeing some women in the clinic until police came a second time. This time, Sanger and her sister, Ethel Byrne, were arrested for breaking a New York state law that prohibited distribution of contraceptives. Sanger and Byrne went to trial in January of 1917. Byrne was convicted and sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse, but went on a hunger strike. She was force-fed, the first woman hunger striker in the U.S. to be so treated. Only when Sanger pledged that Byrne would never break the law was she pardoned after 10 days. Sanger herself was convicted. The trial judge held that women did not have the right to copulate with a feeling of security that there will be no resulting conception. Sanger was offered a more lenient sentence if she promised to not break the law again, but she replied, I cannot respect the law as it exists today. For this, she was sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse. An initial appeal was rejected, but in a subsequent court proceeding in 1918, the birth control movement won a victory when Judge Frederick E. Crane of the New York Court of Appeals issued a ruling which allowed doctors to prescribe contraception. The publicity surrounding Sanger's arrest, trial, and appeal sparked birth control activism across the United States and earned the support of numerous donors who would provide her with funding and support for future endeavors. After World War I, Sanger shifted away from radical politics, and she founded the American Birth Control League in 1921 to enlarge her base of supporters to include the middle class. The founding principles of the ABCL were as follows. We hold that children should be conceived in love, born of the mother's conscious desire, and only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent conception, except when these conditions can be satisfied. John D. Rockefeller Jr. donated $5,000 to her American Birth Control League in 1924, and a second time in 1925. Sanger invested a great deal of effort in communicating with the general public. From 1916 onward, she frequently lectured in churches, women's clubs, homes, and theaters— to workers, churchmen, liberals, socialists, scientists, and upper-class women. She wrote several books in the 1920s which had nationwide impact in promoting the cause of birth control. Between 1920 and 1926, 567,000 copies of Woman in the New Race and The Pivot of Civilization were sold. During the 1920s, Sanger received hundreds of thousands of letters— many of them written in desperation by women begging for information on how to prevent unwanted pregnancies. 500 of these letters were compiled into the 1928 book Motherhood and Bondage. And so it's with this degree of fame and infamy that Margaret Sanger found herself invited to Boston to speak at the Ford Hall Forum on April 16, 1929. The Margaret Sanger Papers Project at NYU gives some background. Since the formation of the American Birth Control League in 1921, Sanger had tried to arrange a public appearance in Boston, a hub of censorship under the control of Mayor James Michael Curley, the colorful defender of Boston's morals. Curley's crackdown on obscenity and unpopular political discourse brought forth the phrase banned in Boston in the 1920s. 
And though he exerted censorious powers against a number of writers and lecturers, he was most consistent in interfering with birth control and Ku Klux Klan meetings. He referred to Sanger's crusade as her child murder propaganda. Mayor Malcolm E. Nichols, Curley's successor, continued the ban against speech promoting birth control during his term from 1926 to 29. However, birth control opposition meetings were freely held in the city. Despite the protests of the American Civil Liberties Union and other organizations, Curley prohibited public meetings in Boston for Sanger in 1923, 24, and 25. I ache all over, Sanger wrote ACLU founder Roger Baldwin in 1924, every time I think of Boston. And Mayor Nichols blocked an attempt in March of 1929 by the Boston Community Church to rent Symphony Hall for a Sanger appearance. Enter the Ford Hall Forum on Beacon Hill. The Forum preserved and annually celebrated its distinction as a beleaguered stronghold of free speech and diversity with a banquet and frolic. For the 1929 banquet, the Forum invited a cross-section of authors, playwrights, civil libertarians, and activists who had been a target of Boston censors. Billing itself as Boston's most undesirable institution, Ford Hall warned on a program poster for the event, no one admitted and less undesirable. Regarding Sanger, the outstanding social warrior of the century, the program advertised that, since those who sit in high places insist that we must be protected from this dangerous woman, she will make no speech, and that, although Mrs. Sanger is muzzled, she will not be handcuffed. The cuffs were reserved for author of banned books Percy Marks to keep him from writing. In his invitation to Sanger, the associate director of the forum wrote that by laughing in this way at those who are responsible for the censorship, we can do more good than in any other way. During the program, historian and professor Arthur Schlesinger read Margaret's speech while she stood alongside him gagged. The speech is brief, so we'll read it in full. To inflict silence upon a woman is indeed a drastic punishment. But there are certain advantages to be derived from it nevertheless. Some people are so busy talking that they do no thinking. Silence inflicts thoughts upon us. It makes us ponder over what we have lost and what we have gained. Words are, after all, only the small change of thought. If we have convictions and cannot express them in words, then let us act them out. Let us live them. Free speech is a fine thing. It should be fought for and defended. If my voice is silenced by the hypocritical powers of reaction in Boston, so much the worse for me, but so much the better for you, for this act of suppression is to test the courage of your convictions if you desire for free speech. It becomes your cue to speak, to act, to demonstrate the valor of your thought. Sometimes, I think we all talk too much, we read too much, we listen too much, but we act too little. We live too little. The authorities of Boston may gag me. They do not want you to hear the truth about birth control. But they cannot gag the truth. We do not need words. We do not need to talk, because the truth speaks for itself. Use your eyes, use your ears, use your intelligence, and you can find out for yourself all that I could tell you. You all know that I have been gagged. I've been suppressed. I've been arrested numerous times. I've been hauled off to jail. 
Yet every time more people have listened to me, more have protested, more have lifted their own voices, more have responded with courage and bravery. As a pioneer fighting for a cause, I believe in free speech. As a propagandist, I see immense advantages in being gagged. It silences me, but it makes millions of others talk and think the cause in which I live. After the forum, Margaret was able to leave Boston without incident. She would go on to form the Birth Control Federation of America in 1939, which changed its name to Planned Parenthood Federation of America in 1942. Her speech was not the only headline-making challenge to free speech in Boston on that day. April 16, 1929, was the opening day of the obscenity trial for Theodore Dreiser's 1925 novel, An American Tragedy. The author makes his feelings known in a letter to Ralph Holmes, writing that, The whole thing is ridiculous beyond belief. Jonathan Green, in the Encyclopedia of Censorship, details the plot of An American Tragedy. Based on a 1906 murder case, An American Tragedy explores the character and life of Clyde Griffiths, the son of street evangelists who yearns for the status, lifestyle, and companionship of the wealthy. His inclination in these respects is thwarted. His instinct of sexuality is expressed in his first experience in a brothel and a passionate relationship with Roberta, a factory worker, who believes that he loves her. The first episode is truncated, ending with the undressing of the prostitute. This interestingly well-rounded and graceful Venus, calmly and before a tall mirror which revealed her fully to herself and him, began to undress. The intimacies with his lover are reported, but not revealed. Clyde, who becomes enamored of the daughter of a wealthy factory owner, attempts to break off the relationship with Roberta, but learns she is pregnant. He tries to arrange an abortion but fails, and Roberta insists that he fulfill his promise to marry her. Clyde carefully plans to drown Roberta in an isolated lake, but hesitates at the last moment. Yet, she falls into the lake and drowns, the victim of an accident. He fails to save her. Volume 2 of the novel focuses on the murder trial. Summarizing the trial, he continues... The attack against an American tragedy instigated by the Watch and Ward Society, a literary vice-crusader group, charged it with containing obscene, indecent, and impure language. It was banned from sale in Boston bookstores. A partner in the publishing firm of Boney and Liverite, Donald Freed, determined to test the novel's suppression. In 1927, he sold a copy to a police lieutenant and was arrested for selling obscene literature in violation of the Massachusetts Anti-Obscenity Statute. The original obscenity charge seems to have resulted from Boston Municipal Court Judge Michael J. Murray's reaction to Clyde Griffith's attempts to arrange for an abortion. The case Commonwealth v. Freed was first tried in the Municipal Court in 1929, the jury finding the New York publisher guilty. There was no sentence. Subsequently, on appeal... The case was heard by the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts in 1930. The lower court ruling was upheld. Freed was fined $300. The court hearings were comparable to those in the municipal court. The attorney for the Watch and Ward Society read specific passages that would support the allegations that the novel, quote, contained certain obscene, indecent, and impure language 
manifestly tending to corrupt the morals of youth, the same being too lewd and obscene to be more particularly set forth in this complaint. The passage set in the brothel featuring the prostitute undressing was among those read. The defense attorney attempted to have the entire text considered rather than the isolated passages. This request was denied. The defense attorney's questions of Dreiser on the stand anticipated his explanation of his authorial purpose and a denial of an intention to write an obscene novel. However, the judge excluded these questions. Neither the judge nor the members of the jury read the entire novel. In the Supreme Court, the issue again was the admission of the entire book in evidence against the charges. Specifically, it was held that, There was no merit and contentions by the defendant that the Commonwealth must show not only that the specific language complained of was obscene, indecent, and impure, but also that the book manifestly tended to corrupt the morals of the youth, and that the proposition could not be determined unless the whole book was admitted in evidence. Oral evidence of the theme contained in an American tragedy was also excluded. In his opinion, delivered on May 26, 1930, Judge Edward Peter Pierce wrote, A careful reading of this compact book of more than 800 pages affords a demonstration that it would have been impracticable to try the case had the defendant been permitted to read this long novel to the jury, and makes evident that even assuming great literary excellence, artistic worth, and an impelling moral lesson in the story, there is nothing essential to the history of the life of its principal characters that would be lost if these passages were omitted which the jury found were obscene, indecent, and manifestly tending to corrupt the morals of youth. Score one for the Watch and Ward Society. Yet, a growing group of educated and enlightened Bostonians understood the harm of censorship. Old South Meeting House, on its website, details its own internal strife in the 1920s. During this time, Old South Meeting House hosted increasingly controversial events. The board of managers were divided over how far free speech at Old South Meeting House should go. Some favored meetings that were purely educational or charitable, while others believed that Old South's revolutionary history mandated a strong free speech anti-censorship policy. In 1929, the issue of free speech at Old South Meeting House reached a boiling point when Eugene O'Neill's play Strange Interlude was banned in Boston. A major forum protesting the ban took place at Old South Meeting House, but some board members felt it went too far. The board held a special meeting to decide Old South's free speech policy. After much discussion, they voted to open the doors of Old South Meeting House to speakers in public discussion without regard to the unpopularity of any cause. Old South Meeting House took its stand at a time when the U.S. Supreme Court and many Americans were wrestling with the idea of free speech. The building's role as a public meeting place, often for radical causes, was once again an important function, just as it had been in the colonial era. As we wrap up this episode, there are two notes that we want to touch upon. First, before you order a Margaret Sanger t-shirt and mug, you'll want to look into her position on eugenics. It's a different story for a different podcast, but we want to acknowledge that she was far from saintly and she did have some troubling views. Secondly, while we are rid of the Watch and Ward Society, free speech and the free press are under constant attack. Let's learn from history. Stay vigilant. 
To learn more about Margaret Sanger's speech in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 098. We'll have a detailed profile on Sanger's career, an image of the statue of her wearing a gag, the text of her speech, and a link to the Encyclopedia of Censorship. And, of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. A couple of listeners wrote in with responses to our show on the 1918 flu epidemic. Listener Beverly said, My grandmother died of the flu in October of 1918 in Boston. She left behind three young daughters under six years old. And Marie said, I'm giving a lecture on September 11th on the flu epidemic in Waltham at the Lyman Estate. Sorry we haven't been more on top of our correspondence, Marie, but we bet it was great. Marie also noted, The most heartbreaking aspect was the enormous mortality rate at the Mass School for Feeble-Minded, later the Fernald Center. Coincidentally, Christine also wrote us about the Fernald Center, saying, Can you do a podcast on the Walter E. Fernald Developmental School in Waltham? I think it would make a great podcast, with opportunities to talk about a lot of different historical subjects since the history is so long. I love the show, it's really good, and I love to learn history of the area where I live. Thank you for your work. Thank you for listening, Christine. With two back-to-back listener comments about the Fernald Center, we'll have to put it in our research list for a future episode. And thanks to everyone who wrote in. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with a story about Boston's own Wild West. 